All right, well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 3. Kids, if you don't have one yet, there is a related coloring sheet out in the welcome area, kind of where all the bulletins and stuff are kept. This is our third time in the book of Ruth together, and it's been a while since Ruth chapter 2. I believe it was all, all the way back July 23rd was when we did Ruth chapter 2. It's been, it's been a long time. So I want to take just a few minutes at the start here to rehearse what we've covered or the story thus far in Ruth 1 and 2. The story of Ruth happened during the Judges, uh, one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. And this story follows one family as they escape famine in Israel by fleeing to another country, to the country of Moab. And we learn that, that death actually follows them there. Uh, first, the father, Elimelech, dies, and then his two sons die. And so uh, the wife, Naomi, is left alone with her two daughters-in-law, her two Moabite daughters-in-law. They're left destitute. And so when they hear that crops have begun to grow again in Israel, Ruth, or excuse me, Naomi, plans to return and go back. But she, she insists that her daughters-in-law from Moab do not go with her because she believes that God is against her, and so there is nothing for them if they come back with her. Uh, but thankfully, one of her daughters-in-law refuses or rejects this advice. She chooses, Ruth chooses, to go back with her to Israel. She insists on going with her, and so she leaves behind her mother, her father, and Moab's gods, and she gives herself for Naomi's good and trusts Naomi's God. That's chapter one. Chapter two, last time, Ruth goes out into the fields of Israel to provide for herself and her mother-in-law. And in God's sovereignty, she ends up working that first day in the field of a man named Boaz. And so all throughout that day, he shows her uncommon kindness, goes out of his way to be kind to her. And it's not until Ruth gets home and, and tells Naomi what happened to her that day, that she learns that she has a, a special connection to this man, that he is one of their close family members, even one of their redeemers. He's one of the men that could be involved in restoring them from their destitute condition. And so this coincidence and Boaz's kindness is just too much for Naomi. And so she finishes chapter, chapter 2 saying, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. And so her faith that seems so, so weak in chapter 1 seems to be renewed and alive again in chapter, or the end of chapter 2. All right, so let's pick up the story in Ruth chapter 3. Now, at the, the end of chapter 1, we learned that Naomi and Ruth had come back to Bethlehem just as the barley harvest was starting. Okay, chapter 1, verse 22. At the end of chapter 2, we read that Ruth kept close, kept, kept close to the young women of Boaz until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Okay, so you need to remember that what Ruth did on, on that first day where we saw her go out in the fields in chapter 2, she has been doing that now for weeks. Okay, there are likely weeks of time that have passed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. This is not like the next day she goes out there. Okay, weeks have passed. Now, the harvest is done at this time, and it's, it's time to start winnowing or, or, or processing the crop. And so Naomi decides that it is time. Time for what? Okay, look at verse 1, chapter 3. 
Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, so Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Okay, so chapter 3 begins exactly the same way that chapter 2 began. Well, close. Okay. There's a conversation at home between Ruth and Naomi. Last time in chapter 2, Ruth took the initiative to go out and find food for them. And this time in chapter 3, Naomi's taking the initiative to help find rest for them. Perhaps you remember what Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law when she didn't want them to come with her. Um, Naomi said, The Lord grant you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And of course, Ruth, again, rejected that advice. But when she did that, she was kind of sacrificing her hope for that kind of rest. But now here in chapter 3, Naomi is taking the initiative to, to find that rest for her daughter-in-law in Israel. And I, and I don't mean that Naomi is kind of, kind of manipulating this and, and pushing forward without trusting the Lord. I think the exact opposite is the case. I think her initiative here is inspired by her faith in the Lord. The events of chapter 2 have, have had a profound effect upon Naomi. Boaz's kindness to Ruth has encouraged Naomi's faith in God. What she thought could never happen, what she thought in chapter 1 was impossible, that one of her Moabite daughters-in-law would find rest in Israel, what she thought was impossible seems very possible now. Naomi can see a path to rest for Ruth in Boaz. She can see how God is kind of bringing things together, and her confidence that God is at work moves her to act in this way. All right, look at verse 1 again. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. All right, so <clears throat> what we're going to see here is that Naomi is doing we use a modern term, a little bit of, of matchmaking here, okay? My wife loves to do this. It's, it's very regular that we're sitting around at night, and she'll say something like, Phil, what do you think about so-and-so and so-and-so, okay? She loves thinking about this because she loves our brothers and sisters in the church that are single. But to my knowledge, and I hope this is the case, she has never been as direct with anyone as Naomi is about to be with Ruth. Okay, I hope if that has happened, I apologize. But <laughs> all right, verse three. Verse three. She says to Ruth, Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. All right, so what is, what is Naomi's plan? Naomi tells Ruth to get all cleaned up, smelling nice, looking nice, and then go down tonight to Boaz's threshing floor, where he's going to be processing his crops. And when she gets there, she needs to find a place that she can, she can hide, a place where she can watch Boaz eat his supper, and then also see where he lays down. And then after he's asleep, she's supposed to come out of hiding uncover Boaz's feet and lie down. Okay. And then with his feet uncovered, sooner or later, he will wake up. And when he does, Ruth must do exactly and everything that Boaz says to do. That's the plan. Okay. Now, some people question the wisdom of Naomi's plan. 
After all, we know from the prophecy of Hosea that, that prostitutes were not unheard of at threshing floors, even in Israel. And so certainly, Naomi's plan could put Ruth in a situation where she is mistaken for or treated as a prostitute. But I don't think it is correct to criticize Naomi for this plan for a couple of reasons. Number one, because the text never criticizes her. The narrator never speaks negatively of Naomi's plan. Secondly, the plan doesn't have to be interpreted as sexually suggestive. Okay, some have taken it this way, but given what we know of Ruth's character and Boaz's character and all the details of the story, there's just no good reason to think that Naomi intended something sexual or that anything sexual actually happened that night. And third, I don't think it's correct to criticize Naomi for her plan because the text never tells us why Naomi suggested this plan. We know she wanted rest for Ruth. We know she seems to be inspired by the recent events, how God has been working in her family. But we don't know why she suggested this plan. Why did it have to happen at night? Why did it have to happen at the threshing floor? Why did Ruth have to go alone in all this? Okay? Many people will guess at the answers to these questions, sometimes putting forward answers that, that make Naomi look completely foolish. But ultimately, we don't know the answer to these questions. And so we need to acknowledge that when, when cultural customs are incredibly different than our own, Naomi may have had very wise reasons for every aspect of this plan. We just don't know. Now, does that mean that there was no risk involved? Okay. No, of course there was risk. But that doesn't make the plan foolish. If we could have asked Naomi, aren't, aren't you concerned that something bad might happen to Ruth? I think she would have had said something like this. Of course something bad could happen, but I'm not worried for two reasons. First, I trust the Lord, who is clearly leading us in this direction. And two, I trust Boaz, who is a worthy man. And I can tell from his kindness to Ruth that he deeply cares for her. You see, Naomi trusts Boaz. How do we know that? She tells Ruth to do whatever Boaz tells her to do in the middle of the night, when no one else is around. Naomi trusts Boaz completely. And so we'll find out if that trust is misplaced. All right, so what, is, what does Ruth think of this plan? Look at verse 5. And she, Ruth, replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And so what happened? Verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So Boaz, is, Boaz finishes eating, lies down, covers himself with a blanket, and he falls asleep. So remember, Ruth is watching from her hiding place, right? She's trying to be very quiet. She probably waits for a little while to make sure he's really asleep, right? And then she slips silently over to him. She pulls back the blanket from his feet and she lays down right there at his feet and then she waits. Do you think she fell asleep? I doubt it. Right? The anticipation would it likely have been just far too much and so she keeps waiting. You know, when will he wake up and tell her what to do? What if he doesn't wake up? What do I do? You know? And so she waits and waits a long time.
And then finally, verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled, and he turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So finally, Boaz stirs. Maybe because the, the cooler night air is blowing on his uncovered feet, he, he wakes up, looks down at his feet, probably to see why they're cold, and there's a woman lying there. This is unexpected. Okay? This is not what he thought he would see. And he doesn't recognize her at first, perhaps because he's, he's just been woken from a deep sleep, or perhaps because it's too dark to be sure. I mean, it is the middle of the night. Okay, we've all had this experience. I have this all the time. I'm woken from a deep sleep in the middle of the night by my kids, and it takes a little bit for our eyes to adjust, figure out which kid it is, or, or even to keep our eyes open. It's, it's challenging. Okay? Or even if you're like me, it's like, what day is it again? Like, I'm trying to remember. Okay, it's a challenging moment that we have almost every day. Now, did you notice what, Bo, what Ruth said to Boaz? At the end of verse 9, she said, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, did Naomi tell her to say that? Think back to Naomi's instructions. Did, he, did she tell her to say that? No. She did not tell her to say that. Naomi told her to uncover Boaz's feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. But Ruth makes this interesting, surprising request of Boaz. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So what, what is Ruth asking for there, and why did she say it like that? Okay. If you think back to earlier in the story, Ruth is not the first person to talk about wings and the refuge of wings. Boaz talked like this back in chapter 2 when he first met Ruth. He said to her, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And apparently, those words from Boaz seem to have been on Ruth's mind throughout the entire harvest. Boaz wanted Ruth to know the, the refuge of God's wings. And now Ruth proposes that God's refuge for her is going to be through Boaz. Spread your wings over your servant, she says, for you are a redeemer. In other words, let me take refuge with you, for you are God's means of, of restoration and fullness for me. She believes that the refuge of God's wings will be the refuge of Boaz's wings. She's proposing marriage to Boaz because he is a redeemer. So how does Boaz respond? Ruth has, Ruth has risked everything by coming to him in this way, confident that she can trust him. And look at his response, verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, what does that tell you about Boaz? One thing is what? He's older, right? Now, I don't think that means he's in a wheelchair or, or like about to die, but he's older. Maybe a generation ahead of her, we don't know, but he's older. Look at what else Boaz says. He says that Ruth's last kindness, what she's doing now, is greater than the first kindness in that she's not gone after young men. So, so what does that mean? What's the, what's the last kindness, the one she's doing now, and what's, what's the first kindness? Okay, the first kindness, almost certainly, is Ruth's kindness to Naomi when she leaves Moab to return with Naomi to Bethlehem. And, and Boaz already commended her for this back in chapter 2 when he first met her. 
So that's the first kindness. Well, what's, what's the greater kindness that he is commending her for now? Most likely, it is not a kindness to Boaz, but rather, again, a kindness to Naomi. Okay? You see, in, in proposing marriage to Boaz, Ruth is choosing a husband that will be good not only for her, but also for Naomi. Had she chosen one of those younger men that, that Boaz just referenced, who presumably would, would not have been a close relative and therefore not one of her redeemers, her marriage could not have raised up an heir for Naomi's family. If Ruth doesn't marry a redeemer, the line of Elimelech, Malon, and Chilion dies. And so in choosing, choosing Boaz, Ruth ensures that if the Lord blesses her with children, her firstborn with Boaz will carry on the line of Naomi's family. This is Ruth's greater kindness, both to the living, to Naomi, and to the dead, her husband, her father-in-law, and her brother-in-law. So Ruth continues to show uncommon kindness to Naomi, confirming that though she is Moabite by birth, she has indeed become one of God's people by faith. Now, I, I do want to be careful here. I, th I, think, I think this might adjust how we read Ruth a little bit, but I, I don't want to overcorrect to the other side of the ditch. Right? If Ruth's greater kindness here is, is not to Boaz, but to, to Naomi, then the story of Ruth is, is not just a story about how two people fell in love. Okay? This is not a Hallmark movie. That is, that is far too simple, and it ignores what Boaz says here. But at the same time, I'm hesitant to say that this is in no way a romantic love story. Ruth and Boaz are not taking these steps toward marriage only out of a sense of duty. For Ruth, her duty to Naomi. For Boaz, his duty to be a redeemer. To look at all that Boaz has done for her, all of his kindness in chapter 2 and chapter 3, to look at all that and say that Ruth's proposal does not match what's in his heart would be to ignore just the natural reading of the story. And similarly for Ruth, to suggest that she could trust this man to the extent that she does and the way that she does here without also genuinely wanting to be his wife is, again, just you, you would never read the story that way. We can affirm and celebrate Ruth's uncommon love for Naomi without having to say that because she loves Naomi, she can't genuinely want to be Boaz's wife. And so she must be proposing marriage that she wouldn't choose otherwise. Okay, no, most likely, her heart has been drawn to Boaz because of his kindness to her and because she loves what marriage to him would mean for her beloved mother-in-law and for herself. Now, we learn at least one more thing here from Boaz's response to Ruth, and it's very important. Okay, and kids, I have a question for you. This is my question for you guys. Okay, everybody looking up here, kids? Here's my question. Was Ruth pretty? Okay, I, I watched an animated version of Ruth with my kids a few weeks ago. I saw another uh, graphic of Ruth this morning. And in both cases, she is presented as very attractive. Okay, she's very pretty. Was Ruth pretty? Kids, what do you think? Okay, the truth is, the text doesn't tell us. Okay, the text does not tell us that Ruth was pretty. She might have been. She might not have been. But she was attractive. We don't know if she was pretty, but she was attractive. Okay, why would Boaz want to marry someone 
like Ruth. Look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Why does Boaz want to marry Ruth? Maybe many reasons. One of them is that she is a worthy woman, virtuous, noble, excellent. And of course, this means that Boaz and Ruth are just perfect for each other, right? Why do I say that? Do you remember how Boaz was introduced to us back in chapter 2? In chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. Naomi had a relative, a worthy man, same word, whose name was Boaz. So Boaz is a worthy man. Ruth is a worthy woman. And everybody knows it. And Boaz knows how rare it is to find a woman like Ruth. Here's another question for you. Do you know how many women in the Old Testament are called worthy women? There's only one. And that woman is a Moabite. So the book of Proverbs says an excellent wife, a worthy wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Brian read that verse earlier in our Old Testament reading from the the final chapter in Proverbs. The book of Proverbs ends with this long description of what the worthy woman or the worthy wife looks like. Now, in our English Bible, the book of Ruth comes after Judges because the events of Ruth happen in the time of the Judges. But in other arrangements of the Old Testament, like, like the Hebrew Bible, the order of the books is different, and Ruth doesn't come after Judges. Where do you think Ruth comes in the Hebrew Bible? After what? Proverbs, right after Proverbs. Proverbs ends with this long description of the worthy woman as if to say, here, right here, is an example of the worthy woman. The wise woman that Proverbs was talking about, she looks just like Ruth, the Moabite. All right, so Boaz assures Ruth that he wants to do for her everything that she's asked. He's like, I'm gonna, I want to do all this, all right? And just then, at that moment, Naomi and all of Boaz and Ruth's friends just jump out of the bushes and they celebrate, right? This is what happened next. This is normal, right? I'm joking. That's not what, you guys aren't even laughing. Like that's, okay. Actually, the exact opposite happens. Boaz says something that just sucks all of the energy out of the scene, okay? He reveals that he is not first in line to marry Ruth. Look at verse 12. Boaz says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Okay, we're reading that. We're like, what? Are, are you kidding me? This is, not, this is not what we wanted. Has ever happened to you? you? You're trusting the Lord. You can see, like, it is clear where God is leading. Everything makes sense. And then, wham, something changes. Or you learn something, and now you wonder if you got it all wrong. Okay, you thought you knew what he was doing, but now you're not so sure. Now, Naomi had told Ruth earlier that Boaz was one of their redeemers. Okay? But, but apparently the opportunity to redeem follows an order. The nearer relative is first, and Boaz is not the nearest relative. So what do they do now? Do Boaz and Ruth like run off in the middle of the night? No, look at verse 13. Boaz says, remain tonight and in the morning if he, the closer relative, will redeem you. Good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Okay, well, this is, none of this is what we want to hear. 
It doesn't resolve the issue, but it does give us this anxious hope. Apparently, the, the nearest relative doesn't have to marry Ruth. He's not required to, but he had the right of first refusal. And hopefully, hopefully, he doesn't want to marry Ruth. But who wouldn't want to marry Ruth, right? I mean, she's like the one worthy woman in the Old Testament. All right. There's nothing else they can do tonight. Look at verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning. I doubt she slept at all. But arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And you can imagine that conversation. I can see Ruth, she, she's fumbling through the door, carrying all of this barley, right? And Naomi says, so how did it go, right? And out comes this story. Ruth tells her everything that happened. And, and she tells her everything that we already know, but she also tells her one thing we didn't know. Did you catch that? Or oh, we haven't read it, I guess. We didn't know what Boaz had said to Ruth when he gave her the barley. Look at verse 17. Ruth said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. We didn't know about that, but I'm glad the narrator included it. Do you remember when, when Naomi and Ruth first rode into town in Bethlehem, Naomi told the women of the city that she, that she had gone away full and God had brought her back empty. And now in chapter 3, when Boaz sends Ruth back to Naomi, he says, you must not go back empty, same word, to your mother-in-law. Boaz sends Ruth back with her hands full. And though it remains to be seen whether he will actually get to be their redeemer, he shows his desire and ability to fulfill that role by continuing to bring fullness where there has been emptiness. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that the, the testimony of this gift and the recounting of what happened last night only confirm what Naomi suspected, that Boaz wants to care for Ruth. And so she is certain that the rest of this day will not pass before he figures this out and settles the matter. Verse 18, she, Naomi, replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. And you have to come back next time to find out what happens. Naomi and Ruth don't know what's going to happen. And neither do we. You've, I know you've probably read the rest of the story. Pretend you haven't read it. This is perhaps one of the greatest cliffhanging moments in the entire Bible. All right. So until next time, which isn't until November, actually, what do we do with this story? If you're a, if you're a single lady, should you do this? Right? Is, that, is, that the, is this like seven steps to finding a husband? If you're a single man, should you be praying that this happens to you? Right? I don't think this is a manual for finding a husband or a wife. I'm not saying it has nothing to contribute as we, by God's grace and his will, seek life mates. I'm not saying it has nothing to contribute to that, but that's certainly not the primary purpose of this story. Usually after we finish the story, we, we ask this question. We ask, where is God? And that's always a great place to start. Now, in chapter three, God is actually never an explicit actor, meaning the narrator never says, God did this. Okay? And yet we do see him in chapter three. We see him again 
in Boaz. Remember, Ruth, Ruth came to Bethlehem and she had nothing. She was a widow, she was a foreigner, she was poor, and she had zero hope that any of those three things would ever improve. They were always going to be that way. But from the first time that Boaz met Ruth in the field until last night at the threshing floor, everything that he has done has been strategic and targeted for Ruth's good to bring about restoration where there is destitution. Without even being asked to do so, Boaz has acted like a redeemer. He's working to restore his destitute family the way God restores his destitute people. That's the role of the redeemer. And remember, other than God himself, Boaz is the only redeemer we ever meet in the entire Old Testament. So there is a unique alignment between God and Boaz. Now, we pointed out last time that Boaz was very kind to Ruth in the field. But that kindness continues and it develops. In chapter 2, Boaz kindly allowed Ruth to, to glean in his field, even among the reapers, unbothered. She was able to eat at his table. She could drink the water meant for his workers. And now in chapter 3, that kindness continues, but it gets harder for Boaz. Because in chapter 3, his kindness to Ruth begins to require that he deny himself. Think about it. Boaz denied himself by not taking advantage of Ruth sexually when all the circumstances last night would have made that very, very easy. And now, as a brief aside, I, I don't think this is the point of the story, but it is always worth noting the simple fact that, that these two people were in a situation where it would have been very easy to give in to sexual temptation, and they didn't. I was thinking this week, if, if Hollywood were making this story into a movie, there is no way this scene wouldn't have included immorality. It's, it's completely, in their minds, Hollywood's minds, unnatural. Ruth and Boaz are just like you and I, and they said no to their flesh in the middle of the judges. And I hope that encourages you in your fight against sexual temptation. Okay, so, so Boaz denies himself by not taking advantage of Ruth sexually when, when all the circumstances would have made that very easy. Number two, he denies himself by honoring God's law and the traditions of his people when he defers to the nearest relative. He wants to marry Ruth and she wants to marry him, but Boaz insists on deferring to the nearer kinsman. That was not easy. And third, Boaz denied himself by continuing to provide for Ruth even when it was not certain that she would be his wife. Though everything was to be determined, Boaz sent her home with as much barley as she could carry. He doesn't withhold his care for her until he knows it's going to be reciprocated back. You see, Boaz is very aware that when all the dust settles from this, he may, be, he may end up on the outside looking in. But his own happiness is not what ultimately drives him. His greatest concern is Ruth's flourishing. And if Boaz gets to marry Ruth, their marriage will be one of the precious few exemplary marriages in the Bible. God himself was probably the only better husband, but to a faithless wife in the nation of Israel. And like God, Boaz will be the kind of husband who selflessly loves his wife by giving of himself sacrificially to ensure that she flourishes. And so it's in Boaz's self-denying kindness to ensure Ruth's good that we see the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us, his bride, his church, and gave himself up for us, Ephesians 5, 24. 
Boaz's self-denying kindness for Ruth is exemplary, for sure. But it is surpassed by the self-denying kindness of Christ for his church. Jesus literally laid down his life to save his bride. Now, maybe you're a husband here this morning, and you're thinking something like this. Well, it would be easier to lay down my life for my wife if she was more like Ruth, a worthy woman. And it is easier to love people who are more lovable. But our struggle to lay down our lives for our wives has much less to do with what she's like and much more to do with what we're like, what's in our hearts. You know, if your husband here, you know that even if you are married to a worthy woman, you still struggle to love her sacrificially. The reason we don't love our wives sacrificially is that we're just selfish. And man, even if, even if you can point to ways that your wife makes it harder to love her, that is no excuse not to lay down your life for her. Boaz didn't give that excuse, and neither did Jesus. Ruth, of course, was a, a worthy woman, but don't forget her heritage. She's a Moabite. She's poor. She's a widow. And very possibly, we don't know this, very possibly, she is barren. She was married for years and never had any children. And yet Boaz loves her anyway. And have you seen Christ's bride? He is making his bride holy. The day is coming when Christ will present his church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish, Ephesians 5.27. But Christ's self-denying kindness to her began with his death to save her from her sin. There's never been a bride more undeserving of her husband's self-denying love than the church, than us. And that's what makes Christ's love so amazing. Now, maybe you're a wife here today, and you're thinking this. Well, it'd be easier to trust my husband the way Ruth trusted Boaz if my husband was more like Boaz. And that's true. A husband's failure to love his wife sacrificially makes it harder for her to trust him. And this is the same for any, any relationship. It is, it is hard to believe that someone really cares about my good if they stop caring for me when it requires self-denial. When we care for others only when it doesn't require self-denial, then we really care only for ourselves. But brothers and sisters, this is, this is not true of Jesus. He covenanted himself to his people, to us, with his blood. Jesus gave up everything a person can give up for someone else when he gave up his life for you. I mean, you can't point to one time that Jesus has acted for himself that was also at your expense. It's never happened. And that's not to say that in, in hard things, we always immediately see the good that he wants to do for us or that he intends to do for us. But even when we can't, the cross preaches to us that God would never, never do something that isn't for our good. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Romans 8.32. There's nothing that Jesus has done in your life that raises legitimate questions about whether he can be trusted. And so we can be confident every day that our Savior is always, always, always trustworthy. He's always working the events of our lives together for our good. And so we should come to him like Ruth came to Boaz, completely vulnerable, and put all our trust in him, asking him to spread his wings over us and telling him that we will do whatever he says.
Now, I don't know everything that is going through Ruth's mind this morning as she waits for the rest of this story. But surely she realizes how fortunate she would be if she, and if she was able to marry a man like Boaz, a man who would deny himself to ensure her and Naomi's good, a man whom they could trust completely. But at least for this morning, she is left having to wonder whether they will have the blessing of such a redeemer. Brothers and sisters, this morning, we do not have to wonder. There is no question. There is no question about the character of our Redeemer, His love for us, and His worthiness of our trust. As the Bride of Christ, the Church of Christ, we have such a husband. We have such a Savior who denied Himself to make us His own a Savior whom we can trust completely. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this amazing story of your great kindness to your people and how it played out in the lives of of this one family. Thank you for preserving it for us. Thank you for the Savior we have who has denied himself for our good Thank you for raising him from the dead. Thank you for how much he loves his church, how much he loves each of his people. Thank you that we can trust him completely. We pray these things in your name. Amen.